because um, for those who may not know, I mean, I think most everyone would know, but we've been working through questions, and people would submit questions, Bible questions, and uh, try and cover uh, that topic from a Bible basis. And the question tonight for uh, this evening is, how did those standing there uh, see the kingdom of God before they died? Now, that question doesn't make sense until we read this verse, so I should have read your verse first. Mark chapter number 9 and verse number 1, the Bible says this, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to, un, said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. And uh, we'll stop right there, and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you again for the privilege and opportunity that we have to gather in your house around your word. God, I pray that you'd use me. I pray, Father, that you'd speak through me. God, I pray that you would touch hearts as only you can. God, I pray that you would just bless each and every person. Uh, and Father, we'll certainly thank you for that. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. The question that was asked is, how did those standing there see the kingdom of God before they died? And uh, that's a very good question. And uh, matter of fact, there were other verses that were given. I can just give these to you. You can jot them down. Matthew 16 and verse number 28 and Luke 9 and verse number 27 uh, they're pretty much parallel passages. So as you read through all three of those passages, you'll find that they say basically the same idea as here in Mark chapter number 9. And uh, as we think about this, in order to answer this question, we absolutely have to define what is the kingdom of God. Uh, what is the kingdom of God? Uh, that's a really important question, and this is a very key phrase used in the New Testament. The phrase kingdom of, of God is used 70 times in the New Testament. And the kingdom of heaven, which is a separate phrase, is used some 39 times, if I remember properly, and it's only used in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and so I want to clarify, because the kingdom of heaven is different than the kingdom of God. They are two separate things. Uh, you would look at them and you'd say, well, they sound very similar, uh, but indeed they're very, they are very different. And we don't have time to get into the whole scope of the kingdom of heaven, uh, but we'll certainly look at the kingdom of God tonight. And the easy answer that I can give, I'll, I'll throw this out there right off top, is the easy answer that we could give um, and could be a possibility is this, uh, that he says here in verse number one, I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And, uh, and then in verse 2, he goes on and he says uh, that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up into a mountain 
and Jesus was transfigured uh, before them. And the easy answer that we could pull out is that, uh, that Jesus being transfigured into the, uh, the God that he, being God who he is, not the God, uh, or a God rather, but the God, the only one and only God, as he was transfigured before them, uh, that they would have seen, hey, the king in all of his glory. And they therefore would have seen the king uh, as the kingdom uh, that would have come. Uh, that's an easy answer that maybe that could be it. But I think there's a little more to it as well that we can certainly look at this evening. So what is the kingdom of God? Uh, there are a lot of verses that cover the kingdom of God, and it is important to read each one before drawing a conclusion. I went through all of them, and I was reading through them, and I was making notes, and, and, uh, and as I would read through each one, sometimes I had to look a little bit deeper into the context. Uh, but uh, I, I do want to mention this, uh, that the, the kingdom of God, you can, in its essence, uh, define it as a universal kingdom. Um, and you say, well, where do you get that? That's from the Old Testament. And we'll go there just for a moment. Though the phrase, the kingdom of God, is not used in the Old Testament, there is a kingdom, and it is God's in the Old Testament. And so, in an essence, it is a kingdom of God. But I want to distinguish between those two, and I believe it's important just to cover the Old Testament passages here. So save your spot here in Mark, and go with me to Psalm 145. Psalm 145, I'd like for you to see this passage. I looked up the word kingdom, and uh, the word kingdom was used in the Bible 342 times uh, that it talks about kingdom. Of course, not every one of those deals with Jesus Christ uh, or God and God's kingdom. They would talk about kingdoms of earth as well uh, and, and other kingdoms, but uh, some of them do pertain to the kingdom of God. Psalm 145 in verse number 9, Psalm 145, verse number 9, the Bible says this, The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. And so we see here in Psalm 145, uh, particularly verses 10 down through uh, verse 13, that the kingdom of God is mentioned, though that phrase, kingdom of God, is not used. It certainly pertains to God's kingdom. And, uh, and in the Old Testament, by and large, when we see the kingdom of God being mentioned, uh, it's God's creation. Uh, and, and it's really the whole earth would speak. Of, of God's creation and as God being the sovereign ruler of the entire creation. And so as we read that and understand this, that, uh, that certainly sin exists in the world. And, and how did that come about? Well, the only way we could explain that uh, is, is that it could be worded in this way, that God allowed Satan to sabotage his creation and, uh, and cause sin to enter the world. 
And so uh, then he would allow man at that point to be in rebellion against God because of man's free will. We do know that sin exists in the world today. We do know that rebellion exists in the world today. I mean, look around us. Uh, in June, they've dubbed Pride Month. Boy, that bugs me. And uh, I'm like, when's, when's straight pride? Um, you know, uh, they don't have that. They don't push that. But, but we see that there's rebellion, not just in that. There's rebellion in every uh, corner that goes against the word of God. I mean, we're rebellious even from our very birth uh, against God. I mean, how many parents have taught their kids to lie? I didn't teach my kids to lie. I taught my kids don't lie. Uh, most parents do. They try and teach their children, don't lie. How many of you have taught your kids to steal? Okay, We don't teach our kids to steal. They just grow up naturally stealing. And so we try and teach them not to do those things. So obviously rebellion does exist in the world that God created. And, uh, and the question was, uh, is this, then, uh, you know, does God still retain ultimate control? And I would say, yes, God does still retain ultimate control. God does allow uh, wickedness to be here in the earth. H how do you understand all of that? Well, part of it is this. Think back to Job. When Job was a righteous man, Job chapter 1, and Satan goes up before God and says, Hast thou considered thy servant Job? And God says, Well, yeah. And basically, Satan says, he only serves you because he's wealthy and because you've blessed him and because you protect him. And God says, that's not true. And, and so Satan says, well, well let, me, let, me, let me take his possessions. And God says, all right, you can have his possessions, but don't touch him. And so what happens? Then, uh, then, then Satan goes in and destroys everything that, that Job owns. What does that passage prove? It proves a lot. But one of the things it proves is that God is ultimately in control. And so we find that God is sovereign and he does have a kingdom of the entire world that is underneath of him. And, uh, and he has allowed uh, Satan to have some uh, rule and reign. I mean... Per, per se by uh, the fact that in the New Testament, Satan is called the God of this world. And, uh, and you say, well, how do you rectify those two? I'm not 100% for sure. I don't understand all of God's reasoning, but I do know this. God created us as uh, people with a free will. In other words, he didn't decide, well, you're always going to do everything that I tell you to do. If that were true, we wouldn't have the world wouldn't be in such a mess. Um, that's obvious. And so we're not robots created to just do whatever God wants us to do. We do have a will and we do have a, a, uh, a, that, that desire in us to either do right or do wrong. And that's why we need God to help us. So the kingdom of God universally defined in the Old Testament would refer to the realm that God is in control of, the world and the universe and everything. And so I wanted just to see that. And as I said, the word kingdom is used 342 times in the Bible. And that would include its usage in kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God in the New Testament. But it is used a lot. And Psalm 22:28, 28, you can just jot it down, says, For the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among the nations. Psalms 103.19 says, The Lord hath prepared His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom ruleth over all. 
And so I just say that to point out that the, the kingdom of God could very well be interpreted as the uh, entire universe that God is in charge of. And, uh, and in the Old Testament, we find that far more commonly, that that's what's being referred to. However, when we go to the New Testament, as we did in Mark chapter 9, I want us to look at several passages. We don't have time to look at uh, all 70 times that the kingdom of God is used in the New Testament. But I do want us to look at a few. So go with me to 1 Corinthians. And uh, of course, we've seen the one in, in Mark 9. But go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. Of course, in the Gospels, there are many uh, passages that talk about the kingdom of God, and many of them overlap. So uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, for example, uh, I don't remember off the top of my head, and I didn't write it down, but in the Gospel of Matthew, you may have the kingdom of God is likened unto the mustard seed, and it's planted. And in the Gospel of Luke, you may have the same passage, the kingdom of God is likened unto a mustard seed that is planted. And then in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Gospel of Luke, you may have as well, uh, the kingdom of God is likened unto the mustard seed. So you might find that same passage uh, in, all, in three of those Gospels at least, and, uh, and that would be duplicated or triplicated in that case throughout the Gospels. So I want us to look at some of the other, other ones as well. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter number 6 and verse number 9, look with me there. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6 and verse number 9, the Bible says, Know ye not that the unrighteousness or unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Well, you read those verses and you realize, wow, man is in a bunch of trouble. Because in reality, uh, boy, about all of us could almost fit in at least one of those, uh, those, those categories. I mean, who has not coveted? Uh, the other day we went visiting and uh, one of the brothers, Brother Tannis, had a hat, and he come in that day, and he's like, I was like, man, I like your hat, and, and he showed it to me, and, and, I, and I said, I said, yeah, I said, Saturday, I was kind of coveting that. I said, I was a little bit envious of your hat, and, uh, and, and I was just joking with him, but in reality, how often it, and how easy it is for us to covet somebody else's possessions. I mean, uh, you see that big monster truck go down the road, and you're like, man, I'd like to have one of those. Or maybe something else, or you see a boat or something else go by, and you're like, man, I'd like to have one of those. And, and, you, and you start to covet. And what I'm saying is, the Bible's very clear here that says, hey, uh, according to that passage, hey, that we're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And, and that gives us a clue as to what is the kingdom of God. But go with me to verse number 11. I cut you short on purpose. Look at what it says in the full context. It says, and such were some of you. In other words, hey, that's where we were. That's where we used to be. But praise the Lord for verse number 11. Look at what it says. And ye are washed. Hallelujah. I love that. We sing that song, Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb? I often thought sometimes I think of that song, and what a precious song in reality. But I look at it and I think, well, I wonder what people think when they, uh, they don't go to church. 
and they walk into a church and we're singing that song and they're thinking, man, these guys are some really weird people. They're singing about being washed in blood and they're thinking, man, that is, that is just weird. And it is, but if you think about it and you realize, hey, uh, it's not a physical washing with blood, but rather that Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross of Calvary so that you and I, so our sins could be washed away. Man, what a blessing to understand and realize. He said, such were some of you, but ye are washed. Praise the Lord that our sins have been washed away. He goes on and he says there in verse number 11, he says, uh, but ye are sanctified. So not only have we been washed, we've been sanctified. I just preached on that a few weeks ago that we've been set apart for the service of God. In other words, that God desires to use us in the ministry in some form or fashion. That doesn't mean that everyone's going to be called to preach uh, and, and pastor a church. Hey, but there's something that everyone can do. Everyone can pray. Everyone can witness. Everyone can do something uh, for the honor and glory of God. And so uh, He has sanctified us or set us apart for His service. It doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Look at the next phrase. He says, and ye are justified, follow that all the way through, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. What a phenomenal verse that is. I mean, he tells us right there, we're washed, sanctified, and justified, just as if I'd never sinned, that our sins are washed away. And listen, how, is, how are we justified? I love this verse because it's so very clear. Uh, listen, we are justified by the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those who deny Jesus. There are those who say, well, Jesus isn't God. Excuse me, the Bible says right here that He's the one that justifies us. And only a perfect sacrifice can take away our sins and wash us and make us clean again. Therefore, Jesus, the sinless, perfect Son of God, and God Himself uh, shed His blood so that you and I can be saved. And so what is the kingdom of God? Well, based on these verses, it seems to indicate, hey, that the kingdom of God is that salvation. In other words, uh, that is the, the, the fact that we have been justified. That's why he says there in verse number 9 and verse number 10 that, that, uh, that the, the wickedness, look at all the words he uses to describe it, uh, fornicators, adulterers, uh, uh, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, uh, extortioners, shall they cannot inherit the kingdom of God is what he's saying. Because he starts it off in the beginning, know ye not. Uh, that, hey, these aren't going to inherit. In other words, our sinful, wicked flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And, uh, and so uh, that's, that points to salvation because he says some of you, we were that, but we've been washed, we've been changed, we've been saved, praise the Lord, and sanctified and justified. Go with me to uh, John chapter number 3. I want to see another passage. This passage is very clear that the kingdom of God really deals with salvation. And look here with me in John chapter number 3. It's a familiar passage to many of us as Nicodemus goes to Jesus. And we'll just read it here in John chapter number 3 and verse number 1. 
says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born... Oh, I skipped a line. Excuse me. Verse number three. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In verse number 3, he says you cannot see the kingdom of God if you're not born again. In verse number 5, he says you cannot enter into the kingdom of God if you've not been born again. And so we understand that, hey, one of the requisites for at least seeing and even entering the kingdom of God is salvation. And of course, that kind of coincides back with 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 9, that, uh, that the kingdom of God does deal with salvation because he says, such were some of you, uh, but praise the Lord, we've been washed and we've been changed. And we thank the Lord for that. I'm glad that I'm not the person that I used to be. I'm glad that God saved me. Uh, I'm glad that God changed my life. And so we see here that uh, you can't see the kingdom of God and you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you have been born again, spiritually speaking. Of course, we know what that is talking about, uh, being saved and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Look with me and let's go to two more passages. Romans chapter number 14. I want you to see the kingdom of God in Romans chapter number 14. It was not too long ago we went through Romans 14 on a Sunday night. And Romans 14 is dealing with uh, differences as one Christian would. Uh, he says right in the beginning, uh, some will eat me and some won't eat me. Some will uh, eat one thing and, and have holidays and others won't eat those things. And, and, and he's saying, listen, uh, not to treat other believers bad because, well, this one's a vegetarian and this one's uh, a carnivore. And, uh, and he says, you know, don't treat people bad. And, of course, a lot of that went back to Jewish customs. This guy eats bacon and this guy doesn't eat bacon. Um, and, and so there was that issue that he was dealing with. But in, in Romans chapter 14 and verse number 17, watch what he says. We'll go back to verse 16. We'll catch it there at the beginning of the sentence. Let not, let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. And in that phrase, he's talking about the physical. In other words, he was physically talking about some are carnivores, some are vegetarians, some are follow the Jewish dietary restrictions, some do not follow the Jewish dietary restrictions. And, uh, and so he's saying, hey, the kingdom of God is not a physical kingdom. That's one of the things the Jews were really confused about. When Jesus came to the earth, they expected him to set up his kingdom on the earth. They expected him to take a throne, set up an army, and overthrow the Romans who were currently ruling over them, and they were excited about that. But when Jesus did not do that, 
They're like, this ain't the Messiah. He didn't do what we expected him to do. Uh, and indeed, he was the Messiah, but they had a misunderstanding. And so God is saying here, uh, and the Bible is saying very clearly, that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not physical. It's not a physical realm uh, that is taking place at this time uh, in the earth. And so uh, he's very clearly defining it's not physical. But look at what he says it is. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Righteousness. How do we get righteousness? Salvation. We, we, we don't have our own righteousness. The Bible is very clear of that. Uh, not of works which we have done. Uh, we can't save ourselves. Titus 3, 5 talks about that. Ephesians uh, t- uh, 2, 8, and 9 talk about that it's not of works that we can do, uh, but, but that our righteousness comes from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, and He gives us His righteousness. And then peace and joy. While well, I read those two things, and I thought immediately, because He says joy in the Holy Ghost, I thought immediately the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, uh, temperance, meekness, faith. Against such there is no law. I don't think I got them in order. But, uh, uh, but he's saying, hey, those, are, those ha- pertain to the fruit of the Spirit. So therefore, he's dealing with salvation. And he's saying the kingdom of God is a spiritual realm, and it, ha- and it pertains to that of salvation. So we see that in 1 Corinthians 6 9. We see that in John 3. We see that in Romans 14 17. And so uh, I believe by looking at these, and there's many others that do distinguish, but I didn't see any of the kingdom of gods that would, that would uh, detract from salvation, that would say it is not salvation. But rather, the majority of the, the passages point to the fact that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom that is set up uh, within our hearts, if you will. And when we allow God to reign in our throne, uh, in our heart, and in our life, then, then that is the kingdom of God. And it's interesting because... Uh, Matthew 6.33, we know this verse. You can turn there if you want, but uh, we sing it uh, oftentimes. I sang it growing up, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. And you say, well, wait a minute, how does that pertain? Well, to lost people, they ought to seek salvation. They ought to, they ought to, uh, they ought to look for salvation. For the saved, we ought to seek salvation. Uh, Not salvation, because once you are saved, once you've trusted Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, uh, then you're saved. Uh, The Bible doesn't talk about the second birth and the third birth and the fourth birth and the fifth birth. It just talks about the second birth. The first birth is a physical birth that you're born into this world. The second birth is a spiritual birth that you're born into the family of God. There is no third birth and fourth birth and fifth birth. You're only born twice or once. And so, uh, so we realize and understand that salvation is a one-time thing. But what are we, uh, then why should we seek after the, the, the kingdom of God? Because as we discovered in, in God's physical kingdom, the earth, there is rebellion. It exists. And listen, a Christian can choose not to seek after the kingdom of God. You see it all the time. You, 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 and you probably know somebody who is a saved person, but they're not living for the Lord. They're not following the Lord. 
they're not serving the Lord. They might, they might not even be in church. They might not even read their Bible. They're living for themselves and they are not seeking the kingdom of God. And so, uh, so he points us to the fact that, hey, we ought to be seeking for God to reign in our lives on a daily basis. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. That's what Matthew 6.33 says. So as we look at the, uh, the idea of kingdom, the kingdom of God, at least in the New Testament, it's defined, I think, fairly clearly that it's talking about salvation. Now, if you go to kingdom of heaven, it's a whole nother ballgame. There's a whole nother set of verses. Go and look them all up and read them. I encourage you to do so. It will be a blessing to you and help you. Uh, but they are two distinct things uh, when you look them both up and you read all of those verses. And so if we go all the way back to our question in Mark chapter 9. We've defined the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. It dealt with the physical realm of God in the New Testament with the phrase, the kingdom of God, most often deals with the salvation of mankind. And I believe that's, that's, um, that is consistent throughout the New Testament passages that deal with the kingdom of God. But as we said in Mark chapter 9 and verse number 1, And he said to them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now, as I said in the first, in the very beginning, that could be and it could have pertained to the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transformed before them and talked with Elias and with Moses. That very well could pertain to that. It also could pertain uh, to the, uh, to the com I don't want to say completion of salvation, but the, uh, the time frame that Jesus had died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and ascended up into heaven, and the Holy Spirit came making the package of salvation complete at that point. In other words, after Jesus died on the cross, after Jesus rose again from the dead, He was still walking with them, but they were yet to see the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is part of our salvation. The Bible is very clear about that, that He seals us until the day of redemption, and that he, he, he indwells us, and that He helps us to, to live a right life. And so uh, it was not until uh, Jesus Christ ascended in Acts chapter number 1, and in Acts chapter number 2, you go back and read it, that the Holy Spirit came, and God made a big deal in Acts chapter number 2 to announce the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter 14, go with me there really quick. John chapter 14, I'd like you to see these verses. In John 14, Jesus has told his disciples in the beginning, uh, well, in chapter 13, I believe towards the end, he told them that he was going to die. He was about to be killed. And, and his disciples were mourning. I mean, they had left everything and followed Jesus Christ, and now they were upset because he was leaving, and he told them that. And he, and he gave them a promise that he would come again. But look with me in John chapter 14 and verse number 16. 
And he gives them not just the promise that he would return, but look at what he says in verse number 16. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Well, who is that comforter? Well, verse number 17 clarifies. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Verse number 18, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And so he gives the disciples here a very solemn promise that, hey, listen, uh, when, uh, the, the, when I, after I die and raise again from the dead, I will send you a comforter. The Holy Spirit will come and he will dwell within you. And that is the package of salvation. That is part of salvation because the Holy Spirit seals us. And the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our salvation. It is the down payment on the full package. So he had given them a promise here saying, hey, that my Holy Spirit will come, the Spirit of God will come and will dwell within you and will comfort you. And so I think personally that it would, may very well pertain to this, that when Jesus told those disciples, some will stand here uh, that will not die before they see the kingdom of God coming. And when did that happen? In my opinion, it's just my opinion, that it happened uh, on, on Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came down and that package of salvation was complete. In other words, hey, the Holy Spirit had started to minister. Jesus Christ had ascended, the Holy Spirit came down, and the Holy Spirit started to, to minister uh, to the people there. And, uh, and that, was, that is the complete package of the kingdom of God here on, on, within ourselves. It is a spiritual kingdom. And so, uh, so how did they see, how did those standing there see the kingdom of God before they died? Uh, I think it could have pertained to the Mount of Transfiguration, or it could have pertained to Acts chapter 2. And most of the disciples, I believe all of the disciples, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, who I don't know would be fair to even call a disciple, but he did follow Jesus nonetheless, just I don't think he was saved. How did how those, all those others, they saw the day of Pentecost? And they would have saw the kingdom of God. I love the wording in here. In, in John chapter 14, he says in verse number 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not. Isn't it interesting that the kingdom of God cannot be seen unless they've been born again, John 3, 3. And they can't enter into it until they've been born again, John 3, 5. And uh, I think all the language kind of corresponds that it cannot be seen. And, uh, and then he tells them, hey, uh, you'll see it before you die. And I think it deals with the entire package of salvation that we receive. Uh, now today, praise the Lord, the Holy Spirit came. We've already passed all those times. And when somebody gets saved, the Spirit dwells within them. They don't need a special showing. They don't need all of the... Uh, things that God did in Acts chapter number 2 to show that the Holy Spirit is there. He is there with them. It is a promise and it's fulfilled uh, in, that, in all of that. And so uh, just to clarify a little bit on the, whole, the work of the Holy Spirit. But I think 
that's what that pertains to. And I hope and hope that hope and pray that that is a help and a blessing to you in understanding what is the kingdom of God as you read through your Bible. And uh, the kingdom of heaven is completely diverse. It's different. And, uh, and we won't cover that for, for the sake of tonight. But I want to point out three things because sometimes more, I, I hear it actually quite frequently. People say, well, let's build the kingdom. Um, and I understand what people mean by that. And I've probably said it myself, let's build the kingdom. But it's interesting to note, God never commanded us in the Bible to build the kingdom of God. That's not something he told us to build. Um, and, and it's interesting. But, but the, the, the church is very important. For some reason, it seems like we get off emphasis on the kingdom of God, and we can get lost in that, that whole idea. But really, uh, Jesus identifies with the church. In Acts chapter 9, and now you won't, we won't go there for sake of time, but in Acts chapter 9, uh, Saul uh, is converted and he sees a great light on the road to Damascus. And Jesus says, uh, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Wait a minute, who was Saul persecuting? The church. He was going around and rounding up those uh, that, that proclaimed the name of Christ in the church, and he wanted to throw them, men and women, in prison. Uh, that, so Jesus identifies himself with the church. Not only that, but in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24 and 25, Jesus gave himself for the church. He says, I show you a great mystery, and he's talking about the love of a, uh, how a husband ought to love his wife, and he says, I'll show you a great mystery, but I speak concerning the church. And he says how he loves the church and gave himself for it. Then in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, uh, it says, it's an interesting verse, I love this verse, but it says that God shed his blood to purchase the church. Now how is that possible? Through Jesus Christ. And that substantiates the fact that Jesus Christ is God. But Jesus shed his blood to purchase the church. And I say all that to say uh, people get all caught up with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, and, and they'll, they'll, they'll avoid a local church because, well, we don't believe in that. Listen, God, uh, God talks a lot more about the, the church uh, than he does building the kingdom. He never said, I, I will build the, my kingdom. He says, um, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says uh, that, that he associates himself with the church. He gave himself for the church. He shed his blood for the church and he expects us to be part of the church and, and work and serve the Lord in that capacity. So that's just a minor thing perhaps I want to throw out there uh, about the kingdom of God because sometimes people will say that and it's a phrase that's tossed around quite a bit. Uh, but really, the kingdom of God pertains to salvation. And that's what God's gift to us uh, in his death on the cross of Calvary. So I hope that helps a little bit, at least clarify some of that and make that more clear. Um, let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you just for your goodness to us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the depth of it, really, God, I, I'm amazed every time I open it and I study and I look through the passages and, God, how deep and how comprehensive your word is. God, I pray that you'd give us understanding hearts and minds and, God, help us in our, sometimes our lack of understanding and sometimes, God, uh, 
I feel like I'm swimming in an ocean. And it's so deep and so great. And God, how wonderful truly your word is. I pray that you'd bless each and every person. Father, thank you for their attentiveness. I pray that you'd speak to each and every heart as only you can. And Father, we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' precious name, I pray, amen. As we have a short hymn of invitation, always like to give an invitation. Maybe God's spoken to your heart as the piano plays. Take a moment there to pray in your seat. Maybe you just want to thank the Lord for the church. Thank the Lord for your salvation. For He washed you, sanctified you, and justified you. Man, what a great verse. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow, what a, what a wonderful, wonderful verse. Maybe you realize, oh, I've never been saved. You can trust the Lord right there in your seat. Say, Lord, I recognize that I am a sinner. I need to be saved. Maybe you're listening at home and you say, man, I, I recognize I am a sinner. But I need to be saved. You can call on the Lord. And He'll save you and He'll change your life. And if you do that, boy, I ask you to get in touch with us. Be sure to contact us because we want to rejoice with you we want to help you get your life grounded in the word of God one of the most important things you can do as the piano plays seated um, we are I went long the clock looks different down here than it does up there that's my excuse I'm sticking with it okay um, I can't read a clock <laughs> um, let me just give you a couple of, of prayers